Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 199 for June 4th, 2009, The Geek Atlas. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by GoToAssistExpress, an easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers, clients, family, or friends. For a free 30-day trial, go to gotoassist.com slash security. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure, privacy, online, SSL, VPN, all the uh, all the acronyms. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, from another acronym, GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. It's Steve Gibson. Hey, Steve. <laughs> you know, this week we could also say that it's all things geeky, because it certainly is. But we have something especially of interest to geeks this week. Oh, good. And, uh, and I want to cover, I want to do something we haven't done before, and that is talk about Three sort of different things, sort of smaller things, rather than just one central topic. So uh, I like that kind of a geek potpourri. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Just some things that have sort of been on my radar recently. Lots of security news, uh, a little bit of errata, and uh, and then we'll get into it. Very good. So uh, before, let's see. um, Yeah, let's talk about the security news first. I wanted to send you a link to a great conversation, a hacker conversation. I'll. I'll send it to you for next week about about security. Oh, okay, good. Well, we do have um, a number of things that have happened since we last spoke. Um, You may have been aware or may have heard that Apple had a a QuickTime flaw, which they have now addressed. They patched, yes. Uh, um, I just, uh, you know, when I I turned my Mac on, there were three things it was updating – I don't remember whether QuickTime was one of them because I, I was my attention was distracted because that band program, whatever the heck it is, go uh, oh, GarageBand was 108 megabytes, and I don't even know where it is or what it does, but it you know apparently it needed some updating. So I guess you don't want your banjo to have a to blow up on you or something. I don't who knows. So. Um, my, my Mac has the current version of GarageBand for all the good it's going to do it, um, and presumably uh, this Apple QuickTime flaw. There was a in the dot picked PICT handling. There was a flaw in a they were there was a 16-bit length attribute that was mishandled that will allow people to generate a malicious QuickTime file, which can naturally take over your machine remotely. So. You want to make sure that you get yourself updated on that. Um, once again, PDF is in the security news. This time, BlackBerry. They've had like three or four problems in the in like in within the last year. BlackBerry has with their PDF handling, and there's a new one which allows you or allows bad guys to malform email containing a a PDF file, send it to a BlackBerry, and take it over remotely. So, wow. So uh, updates are available. 
Uh, before they were available, BlackBerry was very forthcoming and said, look, you know, uh, we want to acknowledge this vulnerability. They got some kudos for being really so upfront about it. Uh, and now they've got it fixed. So um, if if anyone is like, you know, using BlackBerry in corporate environments, they want to make sure that their corporation has updated the server, which apparently is involved in the parsing and the generation of PDFs as they're sent out the, to the Blackberries. So that's been fixed. Um, we have also a zero-day uh, Microsoft DirectX vulnerability in Direct Show, which is a component of DirectX, the Direct Show QuickTime parser. Um, now, there is no fix for it yet. Um, it does not affect Vista and Server 2008 and Win 7. So it's only the down version uh, versions of Windows, Windows 2K, XP, and Server 2003. There, Microsoft doesn't have a fix for it. Oh, and because it's zero day, remember, that means it is being actively exploited now. So that, and again, it means that the way it was discovered was people's machines were crashing or getting code executed on them remotely. And so this is one of those things where you just visit a website and um, and DirectX can, can trigger, that is the, you know, the JavaScript in the website can trigger the playing without any user interaction of a QuickTime file which executes this code which is vulnerable and allows somebody to do malicious things on your machine without you taking any action other than just viewing it through your web browser. Now, the good news is Microsoft has deployed their Fix-It system. I think I've heard you and Paul talking about this kind of this Microsoft Fix-It thing. Where yeah, you- it's kind of cool. If you go to some of their uh, uh, support pages, their knowledge-based pages, there's like a button that yep. says, fix this. And yes. what, usually I think, I suspect it's just a registry patch, but it might do other stuff too. Well, um, it and so, so this is a perfect lead-in. Thank you, Leo, for this. Um, if our listeners go to... Uh, support.microsoft.com. You can do this right now, Leo, and you'll see. Okay. Support.microsoft.com slash KB, as in knowledge with a silent K, <laughs> knowledge base. So it's the slash KB slash 971778. That's the magic number for this. So support.microsoft.com slash KB slash 971778. That will take you to a page acknowledging the problem, and there are two big um, buttons there. One is to disable the QuickTime parser, which is where the problem is for Direct Show, and the other will re-enable it if you you want it to be enabled. So um, uh, you can also download these files rather than executing them. For example, if you had a computer that was, was temporarily disconnected from the Internet or for whatever reason you couldn't go to this site, you can download them as files and then run them standalone on oh, other machines. Interesting. They're COM files. Yeah. Huh. So um, so anyway, so this is a problem that exists now, has not been patched yet. One imagines, you know, here we are. What are we? We're just shy of the second so the, let's see, the second Tuesday of the month. But now it's a QuickTime problem. So is it really an Apple patch or a Microsoft patch? No, the, Apple does not have the problem. This oh, problem, I see. 
so it's a Microsoft implementation. It's like it's, it's like Direct the, Show is the problem. Yeah, it's Direct Show parser that parses QuickTime content. I see. I see. Um, so Apple uh, Apple does not have it. So let's see. The first Tuesday of the month was was you know for, based on the, the timing of this the, this podcast will be aired on on June fourth. Fourth. So that would have been the second. So that means next Tuesday is the second Tuesday of the month. This has all just happened. So it's not clear to me. I mean, we'll see whether Microsoft is able to fix this in time, get this into their patch update. They don't have much lead time to make that happen. So it's not clear whether that whether they will or not. So um, I'm, you know, certainly you do run across QuickTime videos on the net. And once you do this, you will be disabling QuickTime playing for your browser on the net under Windows, which, you know, you can choose to do or not. You can certainly re-enable it afterwards. I imagine that Microsoft's update, when they do it, will probably re-enable it for you. They may take responsibility for undoing the disabling that they're now recommending. But anyway, again, support.microsoft.com slash KB slash 971-778 to disable this in as an interim measure because there is no fix for it. It is a zero-day exploit being actively exploited to take over people's machines. Very interesting. And then, then the final thing, I'll bet you've you probably had this run across your radar, Leo, as a big kerfuffle has has arisen. Um, I think maybe Brian Krebs, who I who I talk about from time to time, who writes a security column for the Washington Post, he may have been the first person to bring this up. And that is that Microsoft was found to be surreptitiously installing a Firefox add-on for .NET. (laughs) And get this, the Firefox add-on that they installed without, as part of their regular monthly patch that is the second tuesday of the month deal when they when they did they introduced the .net framework 3.5 service pack 1 which was back in february um just without telling anyone they slipped this in to the firefox add-on list i have seen it for months yeah I'm me too in there for yeah. a while yeah it's like oh you know i mean i've already given up because it's like okay you know either you're trusting what microsoft is doing or you're, <laughs> you're out or you're out of luck <laughs> exactly i mean if you don't then go to linux or a mac but it literally this add-on establishes in firefox get this quote the ability for websites to easily and quietly Install software on your PC. So the problem here is this is why you're using Firefox, is that you don't want websites to have the ability to easily and quietly install software on your PC. You, you've moved to Firefox because you don't want to be using you know, the most vul- historically vulnerable um, browser, Internet Explorer, in the industry, and yet Microsoft has reached over and added this feature to your Firefox browser without your knowledge or permission to do just that. Now, what makes it even more problematical is that the uninstall button is disabled, uh. so no one can remove it. Uh. Now, now Microsoft is saying, "Oh well, I mean, talk about doublespeak." I'm going to quote. I'm going to quote what Microsoft says on their site because they've been 
slapped so hard and it's, it's raised so much concern that they've now backed off from that. But they say in .NET Framework 3.5 SP1, the .NET Framework Assistant enables Firefox to use the click once technology that is included in the .NET Framework. The .NET Framework Assistant is added at the machine level to enable its functionality for all users on the machine. As a result, the uninstall button is shown as unavailable in the Firefox add-ons list. In case because, there's somebody else who's using it. Oh, well, <laughs> yes, exactly. It's at the machine level. Oh, wow. It's too sophisticated yes. to manage. As a result, the uninstall button is shown as unavailable in the Firefox add-ons list because standard users are not permitted to uninstall machine-level components. Okay. And this, even so, though, that, so if I'm an administrator, I could do it. are running the machine, got it installed just by using, yeah, you know, no Windows problem. Update that yeah. they're, you're being, you know, pounded on to make sure is turned on all the time. Um, so they're saying in this update for .NET Framework 3.5 SP1 and in Windows 7, the .NET Framework Assistant will be installed on a per-user basis. As a result, the uninstall button will be functional in the Firefox add-ons list. This update will also make this version of the .NET Framework Assistant for Firefox compatible with future versions of the Firefox browser, whatever that means. To properly update the .NET Framework Assistant, this update must be applied while the extension is enabled in Firefox. To, and it goes blah, blah, it goes on and on. So once again, we have a URL where Firefox users can get this. It is support dot microsoft dot com slash question mark kbid as in knowledge base identifier so it's question mark kbid equals nine six three seven zero seven so again support dot microsoft dot com slash question mark kbid equals nine six three seven zero seven that will get you to a page where you can do a number of things. You can manually edit the registry. They've got all kinds of different ways of, of rummaging around and making this happen. But there, no, there, no, no um, automatic fix it button. I notice. Yeah, there's not the happy little guy huh. with the tool uh, waving. Sorry, at you. you you can't do that. Yeah. However, what this will end up doing is disabling the disablement, which is to say re-enabling as it you know. Now that they've, they've been scolded, you can re-enable the uninstall and then say, thank you, Microsoft, but I would prefer not to have Firefox able to, you know, easily install software in my machine so that I'm not inconvenienced with the question. This is unconscionable. I can't believe this. Yes. Yes. I'm this, stunned. This is bad. Uh, how dare they? Yeah. Uh, in fact, this is exactly the kind of thing that uh, they've been uh, brought to task for by the Department of Justice and the EU. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, you have to use Internet Explorer. Or we're going to include Internet Explorer. Another thing to modify other browsers that you use on the system to make them less secure. Am I correct? This makes it less secure? Yes, that's exactly what it does. And w which is why Brian Krebs, when he, he like, you know, I guess a couple of people brought it to his attention and he said, huh? And he looked at it and did the research and is like, oh, Goodness, I mean, this is really, That's really bad. 
and you know, and this is you know, Microsoft has worked to build our trust in the whole Windows Update facility. I mean, as I said, you know, you either trust them or you don't use Windows because you know we've given up control. We're now, you know, they're they're downloading code and and dunning us and punishing us and well red flashing lights and things if we if we try to take control back from them and it's funny because a, a friend of mine this morning uh, at Starbucks uh, came to visit and says so um are you are you on IE7 I said oh yeah for quite a while and he says oh I guess so you've made peace with it I said well <laughs> the only time I ever run it now is to run Windows Update right I mean, I, I'm completely converted to Firefox with like zero trouble. Um, so I said, so kinda. I mean, it's it's you know it's on my machines, and eight is sort of filtering in to my machines as I think. Well, okay, why not? I mean, I'm not using it anymore, so I don't care. Microsoft wants to push IE eight on my machines. Fine, you know, it, it has no effect on me except you know for for running Windows Update, which insists on on running under IE. So. Yeah, Leo, I agree. This is, I mean, this is a breach of trust. The fact that this was slipped in, that it is a software installation shim for Firefox so that, so that their .NET framework is able to be more pervasive and, you know, to, to run on more websites. And, and so that website owners are not going to say, well, I'm not really going to update or start using that because, after all, Firefox, you know, doesn't um, support this. Well, Microsoft slipped this in so that it does, even if it's not what the end user would want. And so anyone with Firefox, if you look at your add-on list and you've been keeping your Windows current, you'll see this thing sitting there um, and its uninstall button is grayed out, <laughs> preventing you from uninstalling it until you go here, re-enable the button, then you can say thank you, but no, Microsoft. Now, what do you... Uh... <laughs> What do you lose just out of curiosity if you do that? I mean, is there anything that I need this .NET bug for? Is this the click once thing? Well, that's what it is. And the question is, I mean, it's you could think of it as like super advanced scripting. The question is, for example, and we discuss this often here, what do you lose if you disable scripting? Well, you you lose some functionality that may or may not be something you care about losing in return for increasing your security. So so with it hopefully um uh I don't know what, what <laughs> I mean is there is there a uh, okay yeah well for one thing yeah I mean, well uh, there's no question this was a st- stupid and wrong thing to do. Yes. I mean there's not there's without, not a question about that. Without permission. They could have I mean look at all the things we do have to give permission for. Every time Microsoft does something, we're having to re-verify our license. Yes, I reassert my compliance to your EULA. I mean you know often we're being able we're we're being asked to, you know, recertify that yes, you know, we're going to abide by these license terms. It's certainly not not out of the question to imagine that Microsoft might say, hey, um, we want to, you know, we're updating the .NET framework. It's it's becoming more pervasive. It's the future. So we want to bring Firefox, which we happen to notice you have on your comp- Windows machine for some reason. We want to bring it into compliance um, and make sure that things stay synchronized and the functionality 
that you're going to be, we, we hope you become dependent upon, will also be present in Firefox as it is in IE. So do we have your permission to do this? I mean, all they had to do was ask. And then people could have said, oh, yeah, uh, I guess I should have that or, or not. Do you think this is a case of uh, people? Well, uh, clearly what Microsoft thinks. I'm, I'm trying to put myself in their head is this is too complicated for uh, our users. Uh, we're just going to make this decision on their behalf. Um, and we're not going to explain it because even explaining it is too complicated. So we're just going to do it. We know what's we know what's best. We you know we're not we're not causing a problem here. Uh, you've trusted us to run your system, so we're going to do this. I mean, yes, you can certainly say that. Hey, you know, trust us or leave. Right. I mean, well, we, you have to. I mean, that's the, yeah, that's the deal. Yeah. Oh, I just think that stinks. Now, some people have said this is anti-competitive as well. I have to imagine that there there was a conference of some length at Microsoft where they decided to do this. I mean, this this I hope this wasn't something that they did thoughtlessly. So, you know, following your logic, Leo, they mu- there must have been the argument made that this is something that was in their and their users' best interest to pursue. Um I don't know enough about the architecture of Firefox's innards to know whether they had a choice of making this visible on the surface of the UI or not. They may have had no choice. They, they, you know, they may have preferred to just sort of slip this in as they do in IE secretly, but it may be that the architecture you know, doesn't allow them to do that, that they weren't able to just deposit this somewhere and have it take action without being visible on the uh, on the surface, or they may have felt, shoot, you know, once that's discovered, we'll be in even bigger trouble. So, <laughs> you know, I would have been nice to be asked. It was certainly would have been nice not to have the uninstall button grayed out. Or if you know, if you click it, have the have them then present a dialogue that says, oh, you know, you can uninstall this if you want to, but here's what you lose if you do. Instead, it's just it appears magically. It's about installing software into your system without you, you know, making it easier to do that. And we're not going to let you take it out. Now, I have Firefox installed on my Vista machine and IE8 installed. And I'm looking in the add-ons and, and I, don't, I don't see anything. I do see some Microsoft stuff, the Windows Presentation Foundation and Silverlight. I think I installed those. In Firefox. Yeah. Mozilla default plugin, Java platform, iTunes. I don't, it says .NET in the name of it. Um. Yes, and I definitely. I definitely I've seen it on some of my browsers, but I mean some of my systems. But I, I'm just looking at my my Vista system here, and I don't see it. And I and a couple of people in the chat room said, uh, "Well, I don't see it." So I wonder what circumstances uh, around, or maybe you have to download a. Okay, I'm looking at it. Um, oh, wait a minute. It's in extensions. I'm sorry. It's not in plugins. Correct. I do see it. Aha. Correct. Extensions. I was looking in the wrong place. Okay. Adds click it, one support. There's yep. no disable button. Uh, there's a disable button, but no un- uninstall button. So I could disable it, but I can't remove it. Prompt once before running click once. Report all installed versions. Now, that's interesting. Mine is disabled. Um, I must have done that. I had forgotten, but because I'm seeing my enable button is enabled, and the little pop-up toolkit right. says enable this add-on when Firefox is restarted, and so I had clearly 
disabled it saying, eh, you know, seeing it and saying, eh, I don't think I want this. Thank you very right. much. And so, and I restarted the system and now it's, it's sitting in there. It's not removed. It's not uninstallable, but it is not disabled. Un- exactly. I cannot uninstall it, but I did disable it in the past. Huh. Very interesting. I don't regard. I mean, I guess maybe Microsoft said, well, you can disable it, but I don't want them installing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and we, we can be grateful that this came up, that they've certainly whatever decision they reached around the, the, the conference room t- the discussion that I hope they had, they may recognize now that they went too far and, uh, and they won't do something like this again. So we can hope that they, you know, they learned from it. Yeah, I, 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 it does seem uh, unconscionable. You know, they're supposed to be, maybe, maybe that's expired, but after the, the terms of the settlement with the Department of Justice, Judge Colleen Qatar Kelly, uh, I remember, required a, a judge-appointed ombudsman in Microsoft, maybe even a committee, watching what they do to make sure they don't do any competitive things. I wonder if these people are paying any attention at all. Well, I did pick <laughs> up a little news blurb um, earlier this week that the EU is not through with Microsoft. They're gearing up and are teeing up on Microsoft. Apparently, what they're considering is requiring Windows to include competitive browsers. They're requiring so, Windows to include competitive browsers. Wow. Literally, Firefox and Opera have it example, built in. Good. I think that's would, not a bad would, idea. And so what would happen is when you first turn Windows on, they, they call it a ballot screen. You, you, it comes up and it says, which of these browsers do you wish to install and which do you want to set up as your system default? So they're going to, so the EU would be requiring that users who are first, you know, turning their machine on in, in the, that initial sort of pre-usage configuration phase are actually given a, a choice and the browsers are present and you can choose to install any of them that you, you like and choose which one you want to use. And so they're, they're talking about, you know, moving much further than they did, when, you know, in their prior work of requiring Microsoft to unbundle the media player. Ken Shepardson saying in our friend feed chat room that to decouple the Microsoft is bad stuff from the security stuff. Well, here's the security issue. It, I mean, they're installing something in, into uh, Firefox that allows a website to automatically install software on your machine. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. It seems to me on the surface of it that that's a security issue. And, that, and that's why. <laughs> and and my, my complaint is it's why people left IE. In the first I mean, place. You have to leave IE. You you don't, you know, you're using Firefox because you went to Mozilla org and got it and you know why you're using it. And it's a little bit um, uncomfortable because you have to go back to IE for, for Windows update and, and from things, you know, doing things that only Microsoft will, will allow to happen under IE. So it's like this is a conscious choice people are making for some reason, probably because They've decided they don't trust Internet Explorer. Yeah. So here it's you know, Microsoft reaching over into that decision and saying, ah, not so fast. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have one little bit of errata. Yes. Uh, and you probably know this too. Amazon has indicated that my Kindle will arrive next Thursday. Oh, that was fast. Yes, June 11th. The new DX. Now I'm the big jealous. Screen. No, I'm jealous. <laughs> so I won't be able to wave it in front of the camera, Leo. 
net for next week's recording on Wednesday, but the 10th, uh, next Wednesday is the release date, and so uh, they estimated delivery for the 11th. Wow, so, that uh, was faster than I thought it was going to be. I yes, mean, I got the I'm, impression it would be a few months. Yes, I'm excited. So now your Kindle will be bigger real, than my Kindle. Then I have a real PDF reader more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, for the first time ever, because I'm busy printing paper all the time, you know, printing PDFs. And that's just, that's I not have to why. Admit, I'm, that's, you know, that's old school. I'm intrigued because more and more I'm uh, reading uh, uh, books on the internet, uh, programming do- documents, that kind of thing, as, as I'm sure you are. And uh, that would be a really nice to have that slightly larger form factor and the ability to put the PDFs on there. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 what you said stuck in my mind. That is, it's the the convenience of the smaller size Kindle, you know, being more paperback size, being able to, you know, carry it around easily. Whereas this is more of a slate. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we'll see how that is. Because, I mean, my feeling is I like the larger real estate when I'm reading, you know, seeing more text, paging less often, um, maybe scaling things, you know, using a larger font in dim light and still being able to have plenty of text on the screen. So right. anyway, in uh, in two weeks, I'll uh, I'll be able to wave it in front of the camera and tell our listeners what I think about it. Woohoo! And um, I had a really neat Spinrite testimonial lined up, and I don't know where it went. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I have a whole file of them. But I thought, oh, well, what the heck? You know, I mean, our listeners all know that Spinrite leaps over tall buildings and is faster than a speeding bullet and so forth. So so there's my test. There, We'll do the non-testimonial testimonial. <laughs> we'll skip it for this week because everyone's probably thankful to have a, a week off from Spinrite testimonial. You're preaching to the choir anyway. We all know it's the best. It does work. It does the job. I recommend it. I recommended it to twice on the radio show this uh, past weekend to a couple of different people. I mean, it, it's interesting. And I, I guess this is probably a symptom of the fact that these our hard drives are getting so much bigger. Yes, but honey. I get more and more uh, hard drive uh, failure, you know, sounding questions, you know. Oh, it's, you know, uh, when I try to run this program, it takes a really, really long time and it finally starts. And, you know, yep. little things like that that really sound like bad sectors. And, right. Uh, so the drive is being very patient. It's, it's retrying and retrying right. and going around and around in circles and it's getting, you know, sector at a time reading very slowly. Right. That's a perfect example of something that, you know, Spinrite would just make quick work of. That's what I said. I said, well, you just run Spinrite, it'll move. It'll, it's more persistent than the operating system. It'll get the data if it's at all possible, even if it takes days. It'll yep. get that data and move it to somewhere safe and then mark that sector bad and unusable. Right. And that's really what you want. Hey, before we get to our subjects, and we have three. This is a potpourri, a geek potpourri. We've got the Geek Atlas. We've got IPv6. I'm very interested in hearing about that. And something you're calling non-VPN. I don't know what that is, but yeah. I'll find out. But before we do, I want to welcome a new advertiser to our uh, list of Great companies. Actually, it's the same company. Uh, you know the company well, Citrix. But it's a new product from them. You might have seen their go-to-assist uh, professional product. In fact, we used it at, uh, for a long time on Tech TV, on the screensavers, to assist people. Oh. Uh, they have a um, uh, an express product they're offering to Soho's, small businesses, IT, small IT departments, people who are, help, you know, help a lot of people. Uh, if you've got customers, clients, or family and friends you're giving tech support to, it's a really great product to check out. Go to Assist Express uh, has a lot of features. You know, it's kind of like go to my PC in the sense that you get access. You can get access to another person's computer. They this is a couple of things. You first of all, you install it on your computer, 
And then you can send an invitation to the person who's having problems, or you can even say to them on the phone, go to go to go to assist.com. Here's the uh, ID. Here's my ID. They enter it in. And now they're, in effect, giving you very securely, and this is very important, access to their system. Uh, so you can diagnose problems. You can uh, you get it does a lot of useful IT uh, stuff like it gives you a, 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 a list of programs that are on the system. It tells you what security software is on there. Uh, hardware assays, all that kind of stuff, um, but really secure because you're using this 128-bit end-to-end SSL. Uh, so you really, you know, you don't have any fears that way. You also, of course, there does the NAT traversal thing uh, that that uh, Citrix has made so famous. So you don't have any router issues, and this is important. You know, if you're helping your mom, as I do with this product, uh, you can't explain to her, well, you've got to open a port for it on the router. That's just not going to fly. This works really nicely. Start your sessions with just a click. You send them an email. Works, by the way, PC to Mac, Mac to Mac, Mac to PC, PC to PC. All possible combinations of the above. So I can use a PC to fix my mom's Mac, and, and uh, or I can use a Mac to fix her PC if she had one. Integrated live chat so I can tell her. It's very reassuring what I'm doing as I do it. Um, you get complete information about what's running on the system. Try it free for 30 days. Go to us. This is something that Security Now users, I think, will have a real particularly uh, use for. Go to assist.com slash security. G-O-T-O assist.com slash security for a free 30-day trial of this. Fix, every, fix, as many, <laughs> fix as many computers as you can in 30 days. <laughs> Maybe you won't have to do it again, and, you, and then, you, then you get it for free. I think you're going to like this. Uh, in fact, if you compare the price to... Um, Products like, say, Log Me and Rescue, it's much more affordable. Much more affordable. Free is is affordable too. Go to go to assist.com slash security. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now show. So we both got this book, and I'm really excited about this. Well, I didn't know that you knew the author, Leo. I did. I've known him for a long time, probably because of our connection, because he's he's a regular in your forums. Well, he is. And what happened was about a month ago, I got this polite piece of email from John Graham Cumming, who I've known through the news groups for years. Um, I may have referred to him before, back in the perfect paper passwords era, because he was one of the people who wrote a very nice high-tech implementation of the perfect paper passwords algorithm for for a, a particular platform. And I've sort of forgotten which one now, but um, so, I mean, but he's always contributing and, you know, knowledgeable and I just, you know, appreciated his presence. So this email said, hey, Steve, would you, um, I'm paraphrasing, would you mind uh, if I uh, p- posted a note in the news groups about my forthcoming book? And I said, what forthcoming book? Well, it's a book called The Geek Atlas. And um, it is. Essentially, it is uh, describing 128. Of course, I love that. You know, it's two to the power of seven. It's not 100 or 150. <laughs> it's 128 um, locations around the world um, of technical and historical geeky interest. And um, what, what what I really like about it is that, well, in fact, what I should do is um, let me just read or yeah, um, read for our listeners the review that I wrote, which I have posted at Amazon because the book is now available. It's called The Geek Atlas. 
Um, and it's less than 20 bucks. It's 19 something or other, you know. If it's really, what's nice is it's, it's like one of those guidebooks, you know. I mean, it's like, it's like a, it has lay flat binding. I mean, it really is like a, a guidebook. Well, and, oh, and, and it's published by O'Reilly, so it's got that, the, that standard O'Reilly oh, yeah. feel to oh, it. Oh, yeah, nicely done. And so what I wrote was, this terrific book first came to my attention when its author politely asked whether it would be okay for him to mention it in the technical news group forums my company hosts. I had known of John through his many years as an occasional contributor in our forums, though I knew nothing of his being an author. Little did I know. Now I have a copy, and I love it. When I take it with me to coffee, other regulars who have seen it before grab it if I'm reading something else. We all love it because it is so accessible. And these are people who are not nearly as geeky as I am. Opening the book to literally any page pulls you immediately in. Even if you're not a traveler, I'm definitely not. The book is a compendium of bite-sized, worldwide, technical history of innovation and invention in gratifying detail. No single topic is more than four pages long, so you can read many before your coffee gets cold. And you may be ordering a second cup because this book is difficult to put down. You can read by region or scan the table of contents for anything that looks interesting. The Escher Museum in the Netherlands, the Experimental Breeder Reactor Number 1 in Idaho, the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, the Mendel Museum of Genetics in the Czech Republic, and 124 other notable places and times where something geeky and technologically important happened. I used to wonder how and where the speed of light was first measured. Now I know. John has filled the pages not only with a discussion of interesting brief historical notes, but also with his own diagrams and explanations of every principle and discovery. He has a direct, straightforward, and clear writing style, and best of all, for geeky readers like myself, he clearly knows what he's talking about. Unlike some authors who are disconcerting because you sense that they're not sure of their facts, right. you won't find any of that here. The technical content is precise and will satisfy the geekiest among us. This book would be a bargain at twice Amazon's price of only $20. So think about getting two. Even if you're not a <laughs> geek, you'll love this, really. And I'll bet you know a geek who would value this just as much. Yeah, I, I I agree that it's much it's great because it's more than a guidebook because you're you're learning the science or the the principle or the you know how Enigma worked and that kind of thing and so I mean look at this has got the the ideal rocket equation when you go to White Sands Missile Range Museum I mean <laughs> I that's know. great and and like details about Foucault's pendulum that is swinging from uh, the uh, is it the Pantheon I think it's in France and. Um, I mean, just it, it, there, there was an impulse, an impulse rocket uh, engine that I was reading about uh, this morning. And I mean, anywhere you pick it up, you it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. It's anyway. I just I think our listeners would get a kick out of it if it sounds like something from our description that you would like. My guess is you would like it more than you imagine you would because it's. I mean, it's really nicely done. It's really it's it's fascinating. I don't. You don't even have to go to these places just to read the book. I'm not going. I'm just reading the book. Yeah. yeah. Although it'd be fun to uh, kind of make a a geek tour and go well, to all of these John, places. Yes, John is clearly a traveler because, as I was mentioning to you before we began recording, um, the you know he'll say in there 
that well and if you stand on this mound and look to the northwest you can it's like okay well, he was there know, he was there this guy is traveling around and and picking up all of these interesting tidbits but again it's not just it's not just about travel it's 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 as much for me about history of technology written by somebody you know a serious techie not a writer who's trying to water it down i mean there's you know it's full of diagrams and uh yeah. you know and and explanations of stuff it's interesting. I uh, boy, I wonder if he's been to all these. I guess he has been to all these places. It reads this is, like he. Yeah, it reads like he's been there. This is a labor of love. I mean, you, 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 this must have been a book that he's been working on for years. I mean, to go to all these places, uh, really cool. I mean, this well, is this is one of those obsessive things that only a geek could really do justice to. I love it. I mean, yeah, here's I mean, I Eiffel's opened, diagram of the Eiffel Tower. I, exactly. I just opened. Galvanic corrosion and cathodic protection, the ability of batteries to make electricity by immersing two different metals in an electrolyte, see page X, <laughs> is very – oh, and oh, so I, see, I have a pre – I have a pre-release proof oh. copy, so they didn't fill the page number in. But oh, I have it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have. The... It's very useful, but metal objects can act can accidentally become batteries and end up co- corroding. This galvanic corrosion is a problem for everything from the Statue of Liberty to a ship's rudder, and pipelines are particularly vulnerable because of their size. The problem can even occur when only one type of metal is present because of slightly differing compositions of the same base metal. I mean, this is really good stuff. Leo. Yeah. For I'm going to send a copy of this to my father-in-law. He was a science teacher in high school. He doesn't travel much anymore, but he, he would love the, the, the material in this book, I think. For example, the Statue of Liberty is made from a copper skin with an iron structure. When Gustav Eiffel built the statue, he anticipated that galvanic corrosion would be a problem. So he insulated the copper and iron from each other using the natural plastic shellac. See page again, blank. Who knows what that one talks about? Over time, the shellac insulation gave way, and between the metals, an electrolyte, moist, salty marine air was able to create a simple battery. And it goes on. I mean, it just is, I mean, it's a, it's a technical atlas as much as anything else. I mean, uh, and it, then it all ties into places all over the world where these things happen. Oh, here's Bletchley Park, and here's Instrument Landing System, ILS, British Airways Flight Training in Hounslow, England. And so we've got We've got little icons for it looks like there's hotels nearby and then, you know, GPS coordinates for everything and how ILS works, which I never knew. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. The localizer and the glide. You should, you should know how it works. You've got a couple of ILS computers there. You might, <laughs> you might be called into service at any moment. Bunfield Hill Cemetery in London, England. That's so geeky. I love it. Yeah. Uh, John, oh, John, it's, Bay- it's Bayes' theorem. Yeah, because he wrote talking about Bayesian. He wrote PopFile. You know, um, I used PopFile for a long time. I, I don't use it anymore because I don't use Outlook, but it's a it was a great. Uh, actually, I guess it worked with other programs too, but it was a great uh, Bayesian anti-spam filter. Bayes' theorem gives mathematicians a way of updating a probability when new information comes along. For example, say that seventy percent of the pupils in a school are boys. And 30 are girls. The girls have a choice of uniform, trousers or shirts, and the boys just wear trousers. If a mathematician encounters a pupil at random, then he knows that the chance of the pupil being a girl is 30%. Now suppose the mathematician, the mathematician who is deep in thought and staring at the ground, 
only notices what's covering the pupil's legs. If he sees a pair of trousers, he can calculate the probability that the pupil is a girl using Bayes' theorem. He's updating... He's updated his original estimate, which was 30%, based on new information, and comes up with the answer of 18%. I mean, anyway, this just it's just its like full of stuff like this. Just really interesting. Oh, here's Hooke's Law and Clocks, which is how the escapement works, where, you know, you have a swinging pendulum, and the escapement, every time the pendulum swings, the little disc, the little, the, the, the ratchet moves one notch, but in the process, it also powers the pendulum. So wow. here's got we have two pages on all that. <laughs> uh, it just it's just oh here's Chernobyl. <laughs> I know there's some really there's a picture here of the hammer and feather experiment that Apollo 15 did on the moon to see if Newton uh, was it Newton who was right that uh, they yeah oh, I just love this stuff. Yeah, you know, and I just so love here this stuff. on the on the page after the after Chernobyl, it's potassium iodide and the thyroid, and mm-hmm. so what it is about uh, uh, potassium iodide. One of the immediate dangers after the after the explosion was, a, was right. the presence of radioactive iodine in the food system. Right. Radioactive iodine, iodine-131, is produced in nuclear reactors in normal operation as a product of the fission of uranium-235. The uranium-235 breaks apart when its nucleus is hit by a neutron, releasing energy and creating new elements from the split-apart atom. The elements typically created when uranium-235 breaks apart in a nuclear reaction are cesium, iodine, zirconium, Technium, strontium, promethium, and samarium. And this goes on. So, oh my goodness. Anyway, yeah, like I said, it's hard to put down. It is. Just full of cool stuff. What a great idea. I wanted to bring it to our listeners' attention, as I I did post in the news groups to bring it to our news group's attention. And I wrote that review that I read for Amazon since... And I will. And John Galileo, not Newton. After I posted, he says, I, I'm speechless with gratitude. And I said, John, look at the work you put into this thing. I mean, this is an amazing amount of work. So he's he's earned yeah, props to John. Absolutely. And it is yeah. Galileo, of course, who dropped the cannonball and the feather off the uh, after the I off the leading tower. Of Pisa, leading right? tower of Pisa, yeah. Yep. Not Newton. Thank you, Dr. Mom. <laughs> All right. So that's item one of our trilogy. Yes. Number two is IPv6. Um, we're now using and have been since the beginning IP version 4, IPv4. And in fact, in the, the first four bits of the, uh, of the header of every packet traversing the Internet gives the version number so that software that receives the packet knows what to do with the rest of the bits in the packet. The idea being that, you know, the first four bits say, I'm a version 4, IP version 4 packet. And so then the software says, ah, good. In that case, I know what all the other bits in the IP header layout are, and I know how to process them. If the packet came and said, hey, I'm IPv5 or something, uh, which actually is a streaming protocol that was developed related to IPv4, and that's why it's not available. And they had and the guys at the IETF who were standardizing on the next generation protocol. They had to jump over five and, and call this one six. Um, if the packet said, hey, I'm version six, today our hardware would go, uh, or most hardware, huh? Uh, and just, you know, abort. <laughs> oh, dear. That's not good. Well, no. I mean, because, well, okay. So, here, so here's what's happened is people... From time to time, ask me, and I was asked yesterday, 
uh, if the DNS benchmark program that I've been working on, laboring on for the last many months, which is always almost done, and <laughs> but we're, we're always closer to being almost done, if it would be supporting IPv6. And it, it, it sort of makes me just sigh because, because it is IPv6 is still so far away that I, I, I want to say it doesn't matter. Um, now, there are some instances where it does. For example, it turns out that if your stack in your Windows machine uh, uh, is configured for IPv6, then, for example, it'll emit IPv6 DNS queries. My, I guess my issue is that this doesn't affect end users today. That is the whole IPv6. So, for example, you know, yes, on a server-side platform like the spoofability tester, um, it's necessary for me to be able to ex accept queries in IPv6 format, but, you know, this is not affecting end users today. And it's not clear to me, I mean, ever's a long time, but the whole reason IPv6 was created, the, the, the fundamental motivation was a concern for the depletion of IP space. We know IPv4 has 32-bit internet addressing, 32-bit IP addresses, and that gives us 4,294,967,296 different IPs. Now, what's significant in my mind is that today, in 2009, fully 40% of those IPs are not even in use. They're like, remember Hamachi uses the five dot block of IPs because they're non-routable. No one is using them. Right. The, you know, somebody has them, but you know, they've never been used. So there's right there, 16 million IPs that are, that are available, but no one's using them. And there's a whole bunch of other class A network regions that are the same. And for example, there are universities who were, early into the game, who got themselves a Class A network, meaning 16 million IPs. And they're not using them because they're assigning their students um, NAT-based IPs, network address translation-based IPs, but, you know, they're, they're jealous of this IP space. It's sort of a nice thing for them to have. They'd rather not give them back. So, so instead, we're... We're basically changing everything on the internet, and and I mean the 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 reason I'm of two minds about IPv6 is first of all it has no effect for anybody today. It's not clear to me that in another ten years it will. It's already ten years old. This this spec was was ratified in 1998, and so it's been it's been ten years and. You know, there's some deployment of the so-called six bone, the IPv6 backbone. Um, normal people have no access to it. You, there are services that will allow you to create a tunnel through IPv4 to get to it. So you're able to, if for some reason you want to, mess around with IPv6, access that six bone. But there's not much there at the moment because it's not necessary. I mean, so 
what what happened was that we started this when there was a concern for like exponential growth of IPs on the internet, but the solution turned out to be NAT. So so what's happened is that the 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 emergence of network address translation has essentially solved the problem completely in in a way which is compatible completely with everything we have now you know for example you know many people have networks wh- where they've got a little a little switch you know it used to be hubs then we went to switches well none of those can work on ipv6 because the switches as we've discussed in ancient history on this podcast build a table of ip addresses and they memorize which ip is connected to which port of the switch well all of that is in hardware and all of that is ipv4 so that won't work maybe you could flash someday flash the firmware on your router in order to be v6 aware right now routers mess up ipv6 packets completely they they just they drop them or they they don't even return an error message typically they they, they don't know what to do and that causes connection delays for anybody who's who's receiving these wacky packets um if you're even able to get them so you know when someone says oh well does this i don't i know i'm kind of got myself worked up into a rant here but i i get the question enough that i i just thought it was worth taking some time to say wait a minute you know um I recognize I'm a little bit of a Luddite here. I'm, I never went to Vista. I'm still on XP. It'll be a year before I go to Windows 7 because, you know, I want to let it mature. Um, when IPv6 matters, then it would make sense, certainly, for the things I'm doing in network space to be IPv6 aware. Certainly, when I'm writing CryptoLink, I'm going to anticipate that hopefully over that product's long life, it you know people may be in some place where they need IPv6 compatibility. So I will design 128-bit addresses. That is an architecture that supports IPv6 from the beginning for that product. But but for any kind of application today, IPv6 is just not here. Um, some statistics are interesting. Believe it or not, Russia has the highest percentage of IPv6 penetration. Really? And they're at 0.76%. So less than 1% of machines in Russia are IPv6. Then falling down from there is France at 0.65, the Ukraine at 0.64, Norway at 0.49, and the U.S., at 0.45, China is even that, that is talking about being a big IPv6 deployer. Is at 0.24 because there are so many machines, their numbers are high. But as a percentage, it's less than a than than a quarter of one percent. So wow. you know, it's just not happening now. I know that our listeners are very privacy and security aware. So get a load of this, Leo. The 128-bit address is divided into a two 64-bit pieces, a, a network number and a host ID. Now, we've talked about how IP 
V4 addressing works. Once upon a time, you had this notion of class A, class B, and class C networks, where the idea was you you have a, a 32-bit IP address, which is four bytes. So in a class A network, the first byte is the network number, and the other three bytes are is the host within that network. So, so somebody like who had like a dot four, I'm sorry, like like a the four dot IP would have four dot, and then all the other bytes below that would would in a class A network would be part of that network. So you could have, as I mentioned, sixteen point seven 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 million hosts under that class A network, or you could divide the bytes differently. You could have the first two bytes would specify the network and the second two bytes, the host. That's a so-called class B network. And there you can have, since you've got two bytes or 16 bits, we know that that's 64K or 65536 hosts and the same number of class B networks, potentially, if all of those were available. Or you could have a class C network, which is frankly, well, it's, for example, everyone who's running behind a NAT router, a typical consumer NAT router, you know, the 192.168.0. something, that's a class C network because it's the last byte you, so where you have 256 possibilities, you lose the first and the last IP within the network. So it's 254 actual machines can be within that network. So that's a class C network. Well, the reason we had to sort of fudge those so that there's now what's called CIDR, C-I-D-R, classless interdomain routing, what that allows is for the boundary, instead of just being on byte boundaries, to be on any bit boundaries. So, for example, my connection at level three, I have a, I have a small block of 16 IPs and another one of eight somewhere else. But so I don't have a block of 256. They slid that boundary down. So I've got the last four bits of my IP block that specifies different machines within my little 16 IP space. Bizarrely, here at home, I've got 64 IPs, um, <laughs> thanks to my history with the guys uh, from Vario who then moved over to Cogent. So, but then again, it's not 256, it's 64. So that barrier is able, you can slide it up and down in order to, in order to economize on the allocation of IPs. So, for example, if, if we only had the division, for example, of a class C, then the minimum network, the minimum block of IPs you could give someone would be 256. Instead, by sliding that boundary down lower, um, I can have my 16 IPs on my little network, somebody else can have 16 right next to mine. And, and, and that we're not on the same network. We're on separate networks. So, so that's the advantage of the so-called classless interdomain routing, CIDR. Well, when we went to IP6, all of that problem went away because now we've got, or when we go to IP6, or, or when we went to the specification of IP6, I should say, because you know it hasn't really impacted the world yet. Now we've got 128 bits to work with. So they say, oh, okay, let's dispense with all of this, this, the whole class ABC nonsense. That's gone. We're just going to chop it in half. 
the high order, the, the, the highest 64 bits is the network. The lowest 64 bits is the host on the network. Now understand that 64 bits for the host means you've got, you've got, we used to have 32 bits for all the IP addresses on the internet. Well, we do now uh, under IPv4. So this is that number squared, 4 billion squared <laughs> hosts. That's with, enough. <laughs> you know, that's plenty. <laughs> well, somebody, somebody, I don't I think it was Vince Cerf said that would be a, uh, an IP address for every, what is it, molecule in the universe or oh, something like it's, that? <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. It's like, um, I, it's I, I read somewhere, it's two to the 54 IPs wow. for every star in the sky. Well, there you go. So, you know, I mean, That's again, enough. when, when these, these numbers get big, when you start adding bits to them, I right. mean, they get big right. fast. Right. But there's a little problem because... The, the guys who designed this protocol said, well, how are we going to assign IPs to machines? And they said, well, um, you know, we, we'd like to make them unique. So why don't we base it on the MAC address? So um, that sounds seems sensible. Um, well, yeah, it, it, it's sensible, uh, except that the MAC address doesn't change. Remember, the MAC address is a 48-bit quantity. Right. The high 24 bits is the manufacturer of the network adapter's ID. The low 24 bits is a serial number for that manufacturer. That, that is within that manufacturer. Yeah. So you concatenate those, and you get, you get a 48-bit quantity, which is guaranteed to be unique in the world. So they said, well, that'll just be perfect. We'll just use that as the host identifier. The problem is that doesn't change. And that's your IP, which you reach out over the Internet with whenever you use uh, IPv6. Okay. So it is a super cookie. Right. It is. It's really identifying a, you. Huge. Yeah. Yes, it's identifying that machine indivi indivisibly. Yeah. So... Everyone said, okay, that's a problem. So there's an RFC called 3041. And I've got it in front of me. I'm going to read a little bit of it just so you can understand that the, that he, what the problem is. So reading from RFC 3041, it says, Nodes use IPv6 stateless address auto configuration to generate addresses without the necessity of a dynamic host configuration protocol, DHCP, that we've talked about often, server. Addresses are formed by combining network prefixes, that's the first 64 bits, with an interface identifier. On interfaces that contain embedded IEEE identifiers, that's the MAC address, the interface identifier is typically derived from it. The division of IPv6 addresses into distinct topology and interface identifier portions raises a new issue to IPv6 in that a fixed portion of an IPv6 address, i.e. the interface identifier, can contain an identifier that remains constant even when the topology portion of an address changes, for example, as the result of connecting to a different part of the Internet. 
in IPv4, when an address changes, the entire address, including the local part of the address, usually changes. It is this new issue that this document addresses. If addresses are generated from an interface identifier, a home user's address could contain an interface identifier that remains the same from one dial-up session to the next, even if the rest of the address changes. A troubling case concerns mobile devices that move topologically within the Internet. Wherever they move, they form new addresses for their current topological point of attachment. This is typified today by the, quote, road warrior, unquote, who has Internet connectivity both at home and at the office. While the node's address changes as it moves, however, the interface identifier contained within the address remains the same. In such cases, the interface identifier can be used to track the movement and usage of a particular machine. For example, a server that logs usage information together with a source address um, is also recording the interface identifier since it is embedded within the address. It's the lower 64 bits of the address. Consequently, any data mining technique that correlates activity based on addresses could easily be extended to do the same using the interface identifier. So, you know, it's like everyone on the Internet had a permanent IP address that you that never changed as you moved around and it was used to identify you. So anyway, continuing, it says, this is a particular concern with the expected proliferation of next-generation network-connected devices, for example, PDAs, cell phones, etc., in which large numbers of devices are in, practical, are in practice associated with individual users, i.e. not shared. Thus, the interface identifier embedded within an IP6 address could be used to track activities of an individual, even as they move topologically within the Internet. In summary, IPv6 addresses on a given interface generated via stateless auto-configuration, which is the default case, not, that is not using DHCP, contain the same interface identifier, regardless of where within the Internet the device connects. This facilitates the tracking of individual devices and thus potentially users, the purpose of this document is to define mechanisms that eliminate this issue in those situations where it is a concern. So what RFC 3041 does is introduces a way of, of randomizing this lower 64-bit identifier that would otherwise be static. The good news is it exists in Windows and is enabled by default, but a command can turn it off. And if it's turned off, you don't know it. You just, you just start generating a fixed cookie, a fixed IP address. You know, net sh is the command, space int for, int for interface, space ipv6, and then it's set privacy disabled. You give that command, or something in your machine gives that command, and your IPv6 system starts now using an IP that never changes, rather than changes normally. And, although I haven't looked at it closely, because again, this isn't a big concern for me yet, apparently 
Other operating systems, which are IPv6 enabled, do not have this RFC 3041 support enabled by default. Windows hope for, thankfully does, but other OSs don't. So, you know, there are concerns associated with IPv6 that users are going to have to address. And notice that it says this is a problem when we don't have, for example, DHCP. Well, you know, when you do have DHCP, assigning addresses, for example, in a NAT network, none of this is a problem. And IPv6 is unnecessary. So, anyway, I just sort of wanted to address the issue. It comes up from time to time. People saying, oh, you know, as if it's this great solution to, I think, a problem that we don't have. And due to the way it's been implemented, it introduces some interesting new problems yeah. for security and privacy. I had I, I had no idea. You know, I've been... Um uh, Vince Cerf uh, came on uh, the screensavers many years ago, really pushing V6. He's been one of the people who's been pushing V6 very hard. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, of course, we were very worried that we were running out of addresses. And as you pointed out, this has all changed thanks to DHCP um, and router, widespread use of routers. Yeah, I mean, it, exactly. You know, the ability to use NAT, which is 100% IPv4 compatible, it's completely changed the game yeah, right. so that this just isn't a problem. And even now, we're still using, or we still have huge chunks of IP space unused. I mean, all we have to do, and I'm sure there's mechanisms for doing it, is to go to people who are squatting on, you know, unused Class A networks and say, okay, uh, give them up. You right, know? right. We're deassigning these to you for the good of the world. Because, you know, you're not using them. And guess what? You don't need them. So, you know, the world has changed since back then. We're going to talk. And speaking of the change in the world, I want to talk about the structure of scientific revolutions in a second. But uh, we're also going to talk uh, with something you call non-VPN. I don't know what that is. Aha. Hmm. Uh-huh. Oh, you're such a tease. <laughs> right now, though, time to talk about our uh, great sponsor, our other great sponsor, Audible.com. I got to fix this. I think it's audiblepodcast.com, isn't it? Slash security now. That's the URL if you want to uh, find a free book from Audible and give it a listen. Because, you know, I think if you've never done audiobooks, you might have some preconceived notions that they aren't, uh, you know, that they're hard to listen to or they're not enjoyable. Or I I can blow those out of the water. All you have to do is pick one. And we've got so many great suggestions. I'm going to make a suggestion today that I think it's something you probably read, Stephen. If you haven't, I'm sure you will at some point. This is uh, considered a classic. Um, in fact, I you know I I recommended it the other day, and uh, Dvorak said, "Yeah, the kids are reading this now." This was, I think, came out. Thomas Kuhn wrote this in 1962. The structure of scientific revolutions. He's the guy who really kind of brought the term paradigm shift to uh, to the forefront. I, he may have even coined the term. The idea that scientific revolutions don't just change things they change things they're unpredictable and when they happen everything's up in the air we're in the middle i think of a major scientific revolution uh, with information technology and we're about to come upon a, a biotech revolution i think it's something everybody should know about is the structure of these how they happen what happens this is a great a classic an insight into this by thomas s kuhn this is an example for me. There's a, you know, audio books for me, Audible in particular for me, takes a, has a lot of different, plays a lot of different roles. It's entertainment, 
you know, when I'm in the car and I get a long drive and I just, you know, I just want to take my mind off of it. Audible can lift me up and keep me entertained better than any movie, any radio program, any podcast, because you get engaged and it's like you're seeing a movie in your head. But sometimes you want to learn. You want to stuff your brain with knowledge. And there's a lot of times, you know, today I'm in the on the treadmill, you know, I'm working in the garden, I'm washing the dishes when it's mindless work. I would like to be learning something. And that's where something like the structure of scientific revolutions is a chance to really learn something. A book I picked up in college never did get through. You can get with audiobooks. It's almost as if you're just absorbing the knowledge. A great reader. Let me play a little bit. A great reader like Dennis Holland, who is the uh, reader on this, will will kind of kind of make it come alive for you in in a way His that uh, if you're reading it yourself, will begin you can. to change in ways whose evolution has been too little studied, but whose modern end products are obvious to all and oppressive to many. No longer will his researches usually be embodied. In you know, it's interesting. It's almost like going to a great lecture, actually. I mean, this is this is the this stuff is really fascinating. You're going to love it. But just one of many books, if you want to read a mystery or a thriller or a sci fi, you can read that too. Uh, historic information. Uh, I mean, biographies. I like biographies. I read a lot of biographies too. I find them very inspiring. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. That's the place to go. Sign up for the gold account. You'll get a book free. This could be it or any one of many, many amazing books. Uh, subscribe and uh, and you will be amazed. Audible.com slash audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them for their support of the Security Now program. All right, Steve, non-VPN. What the heck are you talking about, dude? Well, okay. Um, uh you know, I've been spending a lot of time at Starbucks where uh, <laughs> where uh, our listeners come by and say hi and introduce themselves, which is always fun. And um, I've been using OpenVPN um, to post updates to the DNS benchmark at GRC um, and sometimes to get to my network here at home if I, if I need a file. And one of the problems is that that... If I've got an established connection, for example, I've got my newsreader that's connected to the news server at GRC, um, and it's connected through the Starbucks hotspot to the Starbucks uh, uh, router and out to the net. Well, if I bring up the VPN tunnel, um, the newsreader starts to complain because I've disconnected it. I've basically put an enclosure around myself saying that I'm now suddenly participating in this remote network. Well, I've understood that that's a problem. And so I've, I've always had in my own planning for, um, for CryptoLink, this notion of, of what I call, for lack of better term at the moment, my working term is, is, full enclosure or partial enclosure. The idea being that that the way OpenVPN, for example, and as far as I know, all other VPNs work, is that you the machine is completely enclosed and is participating as a peer on the remote network, which is is useful, but sometimes it's not what you want. And and in and so in for CryptoLink, I've sort of identified a feature that I believe will make it unique, which is a partial enclosure where you can you you can designate specific remote locations 
which will whose traffic will be routed through the VPN tunnel and others that won't. Now, in theory, you can do that with OpenVPN because you're able to modify the routing table to determine what's routed through the VPN interface and not. But that gets into some pretty hairy rocket science. And of course, I'm going to make this a lot easier. But the other problem is there's still the the weight of this sense of like bringing up a tunnel, like like doing something to you know establish a connection that all VPNs have. And what's occurred to me that I just sort of wanted to share conceptually with our podcast listeners is an al- there's an alternative approach which I'm in- really intrigued by and which I'm, I may implement, I'm not sure, which is a non-VPN solution which is every bit as secure as a virtual private network solution. And it solves a bunch of problems in a way that 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 I'm intrigued by because, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm coding everything in assembly language. I, you know, implementing protocols myself. I, I really so what drives me is lightweight solutions, minimal solutions, something that works, doesn't get in the way and there's no baggage. There's nothing extra. So what I'm wanting to do when I'm at Starbucks, for example, and this applies to any or many telecommuters, um, certainly there's an application where you need to be on your corporate infrastructure. That is, you need to use a VPN to participate as a peer on your, you know, like to be as if you were at your desk in your corporation. For example, there are, there are you know, corporate mail server that maybe you only can get to if you are, you know, on the inside. And the VPN allows you to simulate, you know, being on the inside. But for many users, like Windows users, for example, um, what, something that works very nicely is, is, you know, file and printer sharing. I know that all kinds of people, for example, in their networks at home, they're mapping drives, as is the term, from one machine to another. So that you just, you, you know, you, you, map a, uh, you map a drive on a different machine to a drive letter on your machine and it's it's like you're there. You're able to to open it, to explore it, to browse around in it, and 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 so forth. Well, all you're really doing is you're making a connection between your machine and the other machine over the um, the Windows file sharing port, which is uh, port four four three. Is it four four three or four four five? Four four three. Four four three is SSL. SSL. Yeah. 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 Um, so um so all you're really doing is making a TCP connection. Now the question of course is why is that dangerous to do from Starbucks? And the answer we all know, I mean the answer is legend is for me to do that I would have to have port 445 open on and facing the internet on the machine I want to connect to. So say for example um, I wanted to access my my C drive at home when I'm at Starbucks. Well, I'd have to have file and printer sharing exposed and, in my case, mapped through a router um, to that machine, which would be incredibly unsafe. You know, no force on earth could make that. You know, could could make me do that. But if there were a way for that to be safe. 
then then I have the 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 simplest of all possible modes of access. I'm not having to mess with a VPN. I'm not having to, you know, raise a barrier which cuts off other things I'm doing, which which me and also for example, routes all my traffic through there and then back out onto the internet, which can can result in lower performance. I mean, I'm at Starbucks, I've got a direct connection to the internet now. Why why force all my traffic up through my connection to home and then back out the same connection, which introduces delay and bandwidth constraint. But of course, it's not safe. Okay. Well, imagine that there were a way to make it safe. Oh, the other thing that the, the, other, the other problem is many ISPs are now blocking these unsafe ports. Like they'll block 137, 30, 138, and 139, which were the old style um, NetBIOS uh, over TCIP file and printer sharing ports, and they're also blocking port 445 because of all the problems Windows has had historically. Well, it's good that it's being blocked because bad things can't get into it, but it's bad if it's me because I want to get to it. Mm. So, so, so we want to avoid ISP filtering. We also want to avoid there being any security vulnerability. Well, so I had this idea, and I call it sort of like a junior VPN. I, 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 but it's not a VPN. I don't know what to call it. But imagine that there were device drivers, network drivers, at either end. And that at my home end, this network driver was listening to other ports, not 445, but other ports, and strongly encrypting and authenticating any packets which arrived there with a symmetric key, a secret symmetric key. And at Starbucks, I have a network driver, which is sort of doing the complementary thing. It's Windows thinks it's sending packets out toward 445. But when this, when they come to this driver, it says, Oh, this is going to home, so we port shift. We shift the destination port up to one or multiple ports because there's nothing to say one packet can't come in and seven can't come out aimed at different ports in order to make sure that we get through to the other end. And that same symmetric, strong symmetric encryption and authentication is applied so that what the packets contain is absolute gibberish. <sighs> you know, I mean, as strong as any VPN, and that's all that a VPN really is, after all, is just symmetric encryption and authentication using a key that, mm-hmm. that no hacker can know. And so, so, this, so this packet leaves, gets shifted to a different port, goes out, passes the ISP's filter, comes in, gets decrypted and authenticated, meaning that only my machine at Starbucks is able to generate a packet which decrypts correctly and authenticates. It's, it, the, the port is shifted back down to 445, so Windows is happy with it, and I'm able to map my C drive or whatever drive or resource that I want to from home um, remotely with no overhead, no tunnels, 
no routing, no encapsulation, no. I mean, there's there, there's other there's other complexities which 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 um, introduce the performance problems that people using VPNs often experience. This dispenses with all of that. As far as I know, this has never been done, and uh, it's the it's the first experiment I want to try as I begin coding CryptoLink uh, for my for my own use. Um, and it occurs to me that it would be useful for you know for lots of instances. When I was reading the the the, the thing that sort of spurred me to to mention this is I was reading the mailbag last week for last week's Q and A, and we had a a listener Steve Heiner. Who he was for, he was having fun. He said, "Quote at the primate exhibit, writing VB with all the monkeys." <laughs> and so he says, "He said I wanted to make a suggestion for a CryptoLink feature. As a software developer, I sometimes need to be able to set up communication between one of my programs and my server." Yeah. Back when I found out about Hamachi through your show, I found myself wishing. I could use a Hamachi DLL, you know, like a lower right. level Hamachi component right. to temporarily create a secure link to my server. That way my programs could communicate with my server without having to deal with the security hassle of running a web server. With the goal of trying to reduce the surface area for an attack, it would be great not to have to expose a web server, but use a CryptoLink connection instead. What do you think? Well, I mean, he's talking about sort of a variant of exactly what I'm saying. Because the other thing about this is, I mean, it's perfect for program-to-program communication. In addition to, for example, me manually mapping a drive, there would be nothing to prevent you from from connecting to a file using, you know, the Microsoft-style UNC, the the uh, standard format for, for uh, generating those sorts of links. So anyway, it's... You know, one of the th- one of the challenges I face is is creating the feature set that I'm looking for in CryptoLink and not having it be confusing to people, but off at the same time wanting to offer features like this that have never been done, never been done before, but which are, I mean create a compelling capability. I just I love the idea that that you know again wherever I am. I would have access to the drives I have at home in a way that's supported by Windows and that in no way mucks around with or messes with or creates any other problems for my normal use of the machine. So this is going to be in CryptoLink, you think? I don't know. <laughs> Can you try it as an experiment and then see how it works, and then maybe I'm, put it in? I'm absolutely going to. Good, I mean, yeah. I I know it'll work. Um, I, I, it's a it's a simple means for for allowing. Well, there are two things. First of all, it it um it only really works this easily over TCP. So it's for TCP things, mm-hmm. but that's what Windows file and printer sharing are. That's what desktop, you know, remote right. desktop is. So it, it, were, it would require TCP things, um, but it again it there's all kinds of other problems associated with tunneling that this completely sidesteps. It's just it's a it's a simple solution, and and it, it's just to me it just seems very compelling and, and absolutely as safe as a VPN because nothing but no one but I can generate these packets and. Um, there, there isn't even a 
uh, a port or ports open that can be scanned because one of the things that the technology I've got does is it allows you to authenticate. It allows CryptoLink to generate self-authenticating um, SIN, TCP SIN packets. So you're completely stealth. Nothing can see that you've got multiple ports open um, and only you are able to connect to it. And it's just as easy as mapping a drive or, or printer on a remote location. Wow. Anyway, I'm... I'm intrigued, and we'll see where it goes. This stuff is hard, though, because you just, uh, well, you know, but I, I, I find this stuff difficult because it's, it's hard to think of all of the ramifications, isn't it? And all of the possible holes and so forth. And, po- you know, I guess this is pretty straightforward. It's, uh, that's what com- it's what I find so compelling is yeah. it really is very straightforward. Yeah, yeah. And we, we've got a, a really good team of, of developers and testers hanging out in the news groups who you know, our, our smart guys like, uh, you know, like John Graham Cumming, who wrote the Geek Atlas and, and others who will, you know, check me on this stuff, too. I mean, they've done it in the past and I'm sure they will here. Um, anyway, that's just I wanted to share it because it's been on my mind. It was brought up by this uh, Steve Heiner in the last week's mailbag. And I thought, you know, um, I'll just, you know, give it to our listeners to think about because I think it's really compelling. Good. This is how you uh, this is how you uh, test something like this. You know, you ask a lot of people, you ask security experts, you try it out, you see what happens. Yep. Very good. Steve, some great fascinating stuff. I thank you for uh, a, a potpourri today. And you know what next week is, Leo? What's next week? Oh, our 200th episode. Number 200. That's kind yep. of amazing. That we is. should celebrate. Not a week missed. I'll drink champagne on this side. You drink champagne on that side. <laughs> or you can have a nice burgundy, whatever you prefer. Cabernet. Yeah, Cabernet, that's, that's right. Um, by the way, his place is grc.com. That's the place to go on the web to find Steve's show notes, the 16 kilobit versions of this show, the uh, transcripts. We have transcripts for each and every episode. Uh, but also uh, Steve's other great software, Spinrite, uh, which is absolutely the one and only, the best disk recovery and maintenance utility, the one you got to have. Um, oh, his free stuff like Shields Up, Wismo, Decombobulator, all that great stuff. It's all at GRC, Gibson Research Corp, grc.com. And we will be back here in your iPod or iPhone or Zoom or Kindle or whatever you listen to us on, maybe on the web, uh, next Thursday and every Thursday, pretty much for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I think so. The, the, the rate we're going, that's definitely the case. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Have a great week. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Bye-bye. Security Now.